Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they're growing in this world, longtime listeners of Cultivating Place will be familiar with writer gardener Marta McDowell. She has joined us previously to share more about her titles, digging into the gardening life of Beatrix Potter, of Laura Ingalls Wilder, of Gardens of the White House, and more. This week, Marta returns for something of a midwinter escapist break, garden book club kind of conversation to share more about her newest title, Gardening Can Be Murder, How Poisonous Poppies, Sinister Shovels, and Grim Gardens Have Inspired Mystery Writers. Marta, it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Cultivating Place. Hello, Jennifer. It's so nice to be here. So I want to start off with this, Marta. Give us the two-minute elevator description of this book for you. So this book came about, I mean, frankly, because... I've always read mysteries. And so, and you know, I've gardened for a very long time. And so in a way it was sort of a natural. Uh, mm. I read a particular mystery, which we can talk about later, uh, that it all kind of clicked that this was a thing, right? That gardeners yeah. and mystery writers or mystery enthusiasts have a lot of crossover. And I wrote an article for Hortus quite a while ago, and then COVID happened, and I needed something to work on, and this was absolutely perfect. And that is actually how this book came to be. <laughs> I liked how you just said that this was a thing, like having read mysteries or watched mysteries, crime fiction, detective stories your whole life you have this moment of like, wait a minute, this is a really common recurring theme that one, writers are gardeners, two, that mystery writers are, are gardeners, and three, that gardening and the horticultural world is both inspiration for and um, setting and a fodder is a word that you use in the book. Actually, one of your writers says this is fodder for the mystery genre. And as I was reading, I was like, you know, that is so true. Like as a reader and a, a watcher of mysteries myself, every time there's a good use of horticultural information, like the pollen collected out of the lungs of the dead person couldn't have come from this plant. It had to come from this plant in this season. I'm like, oh, good. That's a good one. All right. So we're going to we're going to leave that for just a second. You know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, um, and I've given a, an introduction that gave a sort of general arc, but remind listeners a tiny bit about who you are and what you do and how the trowel does very much coexist with the pen for you. So I love to garden and I love to read. So what I do when I am gardening at my keyboard. I like that. 
Yeah, it's kind of a mashup of those two things. I have explored literary themes, mostly from the point of view of writers who garden. Uh, and it sort of branched out from there, I guess, pun intended. I always loved garden history. I always loved history. So, you know, the, that was another branch. Uh, and so I uh, did a lot of research on historic gardens and have written about them and teach about them. I garden, you know, I like to dig. I, I remember once introducing myself to a really famous English garden historian uh, who shall remain nameless. And I described myself as a dirt gardener. And he thought that was fairly awful <laughs> <laughs> that I put those two words together. But I really do love to dig. So in a way, I'm a generalist, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. I, I think I still can't decide what to be when I grow up. And and why should I ever decide? Why? why? So many choices. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. My history is a gardener. When I was a kid, I had a great aunt. Uh, it was my mother's Aunt Mary. She lived in this tiny town called Atlanta, Illinois. And she didn't have children of her own, which was a crime because she was very good with children. My mother was named for her. And so there's always this special relationship. And we'd go and she had this little flower garden. I remember she grew magic lilies, which are what she called this hardy amaryllis or lycoris and tiger lilies. She had a ham, hand pump, you know, like a farm pump and a metal watering can. And if you want to get a kid excited, you know, <laughs> when they're four years old about gardening, give them a hand pump. Uh, and so I think, you know, she sort of instilled that interest. But it really wasn't until I was, I think, in my 20s. Yeah, I'd be in my 20s that I had a little, you know, little piece of earth of my own and uh, got bitten by the gardening bug actually by a fictional nurseryman. So that seems fitting. Very. Right? His name was Amos Pettingill. Uh -huh. <laughs> An invention of White Flower Farm. The first owners of White Flower Farm, like way back in the like 50s, they invented this character, Amos Pettingill. And so their wonderful catalog was written by this Man, I always thought was a real person, but anyway, he he was not a real person. But I did buy a lot of plants, mail order from White Flower Farm. I still have at least one of them growing in my garden. So anyway, it kind of all went from there. You gave us the sort of short germination arc, uh, but clearly this arc goes way, like once you started digging into this thread of, oh, wait, this is a thing murder mysteries and gardens and gardeners. And then it becomes clear as you as you begin to do your research and to put notes down to paper that this has actually been a thing in your life since you were little. Take us there. Well, you know, I think I must have had a very vivid childhood because I have really intense memories of my childhood years and things that happened. So I loved to read, you know, from a young age. Now, I was, I was not a particularly early reader. I mean, I still read 
remember first grade and see John run, you know, kind of propped up on the, the blackboard. But once I started to read, we had some books at home. So I was the youngest of four children. Uh, my brother, who was the oldest, had the Hardy Boys, so I read them. Uh, I definitely read all of my sister's Nancy Drews, you know, whatever they had. And then we were a library family, more than a, you know, buy books family. My parents were very thrifty. <laughs> so we'd go to the library at least once a week and come home with a pile of books. And among those were always some mysteries, you know, eventually you graduate to the, you know, out of the children's room to the regular fiction room. Uh, I don't really remember young adult fiction. I think that's actually later than my time. <laughs> you know, it wasn't called that anyway. So I suppose like Nancy Drew, we would now consider it sort of young adult fiction, but and then you know i i went to writers like phyllis a whitney mary stewart you know is they, you know they were these kind of fantasy gothic romance mystery uh kind of books and then eventually agatha christie i think like so many people so you know i just i i read a lot of different things but mysteries are always have always been among the mix i find them despite the dead bodies i find them strangely re relaxing <laughs> well and you know you you touch on this in the book noting how voracious our world is right now for good crime fiction murder mysteries i mean you can see it on as you you note on netflix and britbox and acorn like we as a collective cannot get enough of these uh scenarios in which something terrible happens someone dies often in a gruesome way and and then we spend the rest of the hour or the six part series sort of figuring it out through the foibles of humanity and and the human characters who are the detectives um so there's something and and as you lay out in the book you know this goes back many many centuries this interest in uh the murderous side of us and and you make this lovely kind of parallel to what we encounter in the garden you know it's it, the garden is life and life is the garden in many ways and it's the same in this exact way we find in the garden gruesomeness death dismemberment murder uh you know me and the slug and so there's this like great human connection uh, between us, our gardens, these terrible things, and then figuring out some, it's almost like they're a placebo for, for trying to grapple with the terrible things in the world. And we're allowed to kind of process a little bit through these stories. Do you think that is sort of part of it? I mean, absolutely. So, you know, I go out in my garden and, and one thing that I think most gardeners do on a regular basis, if they care about their plants, is to start looking for pests, right? Some of them in yes. my garden are really, really evident. You know, when my <laughs> friendly neighborhood groundhog has been for a visit, 
I know it and I know, okay, you know, I've got to get that stinky spray out and, you know, spray some, you know, probably hot pepper slash egg goo on my plants so that my, my groundhog, who I call Fred, I don't know actually if Fred is, you know, Frederick or Frederica or, you know, whatever, but, you know, Fred comes um, and, you know, decides maybe he should just stick with the clover in my so-called lawn. So, you know, and then on the plants themselves, I, I can't tell you the, you know, kind of the rage, the burning homicidal rage I feel when I see the, we have these red lily beetles now that get on the various kinds of lilies, some worse than others, and, you know, just wanting to kill them. <laughs> So, you know, it's them or the lily, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm not ready to have it have sacrificial <laughs> lilies in my garden yet. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back in conversation this week with author gardener Marta McDowell. We're talking about the odd pleasure of her newest title. Gardening can be murder. We'll be right back for more after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, funding initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. I love that this week's program first airs on Leap Day of our Leap Year. Something about how the day is supposed to equilibrate time and the planet. But somehow, that's also what my garden does for me throughout all seasons of all years. So maybe it should just be a go-to-the-garden permission slip kind of day, if the weather allows, or a plan-your-garden-day in dreams and seed orders, if the weather keeps you inside. I also love that we kick off Women's History Month as of March 1st, and it marks four full years since our last leap year, and when my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, was published on March 3rd of that fateful March back in 2020. You all remember 2020, right? I am just back from a week of talks on the road, and I head out again next week. But I am pleased to report that the messages from The Earth in Her Hands about diversity and biodiversity and women being important leadership voices growing our world better continues to resonate with audiences wherever I go. So here is to Women's History Month and here's to an incredible diversity of fabulous women leading from their gardens, from their impulse to garden, and from the many ways these leaders grow our world starting right where they are. The earth is in their hands, but let's face it, the earth is in all of our hands. So let's keep growing the world smarter, brighter, biodiverse, beautiful, and brave. 
Most gardeners know the somewhat gruesome pleasure of working in the garden. With a sharp tool or a poisonous plant or a juicy scene of decomposition and thinking to yourself, oh, this would be a great scene or plot for a murder mystery. Well, writer and gardener Marta McDowell is with us this week sharing more about her newest title, Gardening Can Be Murder, delving into the literary history of mysteries and crime fiction being long inspired by life and death in the gardener and by gardeners themselves. As we come back, Marta shares more about her process for researching and writing her books, Gardening at the Keyboard, as she calls it. So typically when I write a book, I spend a goodly amount of time in various archives. So it's usually a university or some sort of public library setting. They have a set of historic papers for the person or people I'm interested in. And I sit there, you know, you order materials, you sit there and you go through, I go through boxes and boxes, generally of letters or journals, you know, things that a person has written. I will say I typically write about dead people. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what people will do nowadays when our normal correspondence is electronic, but I'm going to let a new generation of people worry about that. Uh, So with COVID, of course, we couldn't get to archives and the archivists who could get to work were absolutely overwhelmed with requests from people like me who wanted things scanned. And I just decided that was going to be too complicated And I had, you know, this idea had been kind of in my mind and my publisher said, yeah, this sounds like something we could do. Now, you know, Jennifer, because you've written books, you come up with this idea and you come up with like a rough feeling in your mind. Maybe you do a tiny bit of research, but if you're like me, it's at this point, it's in the wing and a prayer category. Like, oh, yeah, I can make a book out right, of this. Right, right, right. <laughs> so with Gardening Can Be Murder, the first issue was, unlike writing about a person and their life, I didn't have a natural framework for this book. You know, if you, I wrote about the White House gardens, right? I started with, you know, the, you know, indigenous Americans moved to George Washington and kept going to the present. Didn't have this, so I needed to create it. And what I settled on was the components of a classic, you know, sort of detective fiction. So there is some sort of sleuth. There is a setting for the crime. And then we have motive, means, you know, opportunity, suspects. And that was my outline. That was my skeleton, right? And so from that point on, I could kind of plug things in, in a kind of like Lego fashion 
into this structure. So that was kind of the overall process. The book was strangely crowdsourced because I kept doing book talks, you know, for my earlier books during COVID because we had Zoom. And I will tell you, I did not know what Zoom was <laughs> on that final day in March. Right. We saw one another. Right. <laughs> that was the first time I'd heard about it from someone at the New York Botanical Garden. You know, oh, we can teach on Zoom, you know. And people would ask me, what am I working on, you know, at the moment, people tend to do. And I would say, you know, I'm working about a, on a book about garden themes in crime fiction. And invariably, you know, within the next few days, someone would send me a note unsolicited that said, oh, I think you should include these. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so helpful. So, you know, I didn't have to find them all myself, which was really great. And they had been sort of vetted, if you will. So that was really fun. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll mention is because this was going to be a book without color illustrations, which was, again, something new for me, uh, I I got in touch with a friend of mine and said, you know, she's an artist. And I said, would you have time to do illustrations for this book? And, you know, she said, yeah, well, tell me what you had in mind and, and I'll come up with a sample and you see if, you know, it kind of fits your idea. And so I told her, you know, I like I like silhouettes and I like Edward Gorey, who is a, he was a very unusual uh artist uh no longer with us but he had done the characters that always appeared at the beginning of the um you know public broadcasting masterpiece mystery series the lady that throws herself over the the gravestone and goes ah that's the <laughs> one so th those were his figures and uh, so, you know, she had a couple of vague ideas of what I had in mind. And and then, you know, she sent me a sample. It was perfect. And then she said, well, send me a list of the topics and the kind of the chapters in your book. And and yes, I'll come up with, you know, I'll come up with illustrations. So that was super fun. Yeah. And he was also the the author and illustrator of a wonderful little book called The Evil Garden. Oh, yes, I have that. I do have that on my shelf. And I don't know, for some reason, I had contacted, you know, the Edward Gorey Foundation, or I can't remember what, what it's called, to say, you know, could I use some Edward Gorey artwork? But they must have been, you know, had like suspended operations during the pandemic. And so I just never heard from them. So in a way, I think it worked out uh, even better because Yolanda really made custom illustrations to go with with my text. So that was super and they really are beautiful. And they update the the silhouette artwork. The opening title page uh, has like beautifully outlined Datura or Brugmansia. I guess it's Brugmansia because they're pointed down and uh, other kind of sinister but evocative looking vines and foliage and a, and a bat up above. It's great. <laughs> so you come up with this structure that includes... Uh, an overview of the the idea, and then uh, 
chapters on gardening detectives and you do a, a lovely kind of little list of of these, you know, from Miss Marple to Poirot to Dupin to I think there's a, another in there. The garden as the setting, the garden as the motive, uh, the garden as means, the garden as more means. <laughs> I love dial M for mulch cracked me up. <laughs> Uh, the garden as holding clues, the garden uh, as or gardeners as suspects, and then mystery writers and their gardens. And then you have a fantastic book list. So for anybody who's uh, insatiable desire for mystery and gardens might come together and you need something to fill out your list this winter. At the back of Gardening Can Be Murder is an excellent list of titles and authors who meet at this intersection of murder, mystery, and gardening. Um, and that must have taken some time to put together, Marta. Well, I'm I'm a person of lists, you know. Some <laughs> <laughs> As a researcher, you should be, right? Yeah, sometimes yeah. it isn't easy being me. <laughs> but I just have learned to uh, accept the fact that I am a list maker. And as long as I make them, I feel that I might as well <laughs> share them. I want to go through the book a little bit and talk about some of the uh, details, writers, stories, famous detectives in the fiction uh, that you chose to include as illustrating this theme that has run through your life and through the life of this genre, um, both both genres, gardening and murder mystery. And to point out for people, and you, you note this right in the beginning as well, like this is not an exhaustive research. This is uh, an experiential one. It is uh, preferences of Marta's throughout time. And she pulls forward some excellent examples, you know, that that date back to the, the 1800s all the way to current day. And we'll get to that in a minute. You know, so th there might be people or, or characters or stories or settings or clues that you think of and wish she had put them in. But that is an invitation for the next writer. And these are your preferences, right? These are the ones that really moved and caught your attention, Marta. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can, with a survey, you're hoping to get enough specifics that you have good examples of various themes and subgenres, but you know, for a book this size, that was what I tackled, right? And what I intended mm -hmm. to do. So I actually am keeping a kind of running list of uh, of crime fiction to so that I can add to it on my website, so that if people which they already have, send me suggestions that I can add them in a place that people can get to them. So I thought that would be a kindness. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe the outline of a gardening can be even more murderous. <laughs> um, 
So, so take us to your gardening detectives, because I think people do really get attached to the detectives that are the stars in their fumbling, funny ways of our favorite murder mystery series, certainly. Take us to some of your favorite detectives who were also gardeners and how this not only made them better detectives, but also gave them relief from being detectives as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I think my my personal favorite is still Miss Jane Marple. Yeah. Maybe the older I get, the more I like Miss Marple. Uh, it, it was, she was Agatha Christie. Steve's one of Agatha Christie's favorites. Uh, I think she and Hercule Poirot had the most, you know, most stories written about them. And even in the very beginning, Miss Marple is of a certain age, and and Christie wrote about her for decades. You know, she once said, you know, I should have made Jane Marple a schoolgirl when I started because it would, it's completely preposterous that she'd still be alive. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's you know that's just part of the deal. You either you either address that as a series writer, or you just kind of let it go and say this right. is fiction. Um, I think that the Miss Marple stories also really set the prototype for the village murder mystery, the English village murder mystery. So. You know, those I always loved because it's kind of that, I don't know, that it has that kind of romantic glow for me, this, you know, living in a village in, in England somewhere lovely, uh, where, you know, it's not gray and and uh, about to snow, which it is here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and, and you happen to be in New Jersey, but saying that on this day, we're January 15th, 2024, uh, it's gray and it might snow is probably the forecast for most of the United States, except maybe me today. <laughs> and Hawaii. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, right. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, yes. So yeah. anyway, you know, it's and she was a gardener and and Christy kept kind of returning to that in little ways through the books. So, you know, that was always great fun for me. The only problem was, you know, when you run out of Miss Marple, it's always sad. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you know, eventually it comes to an end. Although I will say that there was a new book uh, last year, so 2023, of Miss Marple stories that said, you know, it had Agatha Christie Marple in big letters and in very small print it said, you know, 12 new stories by 12 contemporary crime writers. <laughs> but they're fun. And actually, quite a few of them also have horticultural themes. Anyway, so I think Miss Marple's my favorite, not to go too far down the, you know, the rabbit hole with that one. But I really, I do want you, I love that. And I, I think many people will not. I think the name Miss Marple is so, gen is like universally, um, you know, familiar to people, even if they haven't read the series or even watched, you know, some of the, the adaptations on film. I would love you to also share a little bit more about the detective who kicks off this theme, as far as you can tell, in our contemporary understanding of uh, murder mystery detective heroes. 
And that would be, yeah, Sergeant Cuff from Wilkie Collins. The Moonstone, which I actually had to read, not, I mean, I was asked to read. It was on the syllabus for a college course in this exact genre uh, when I was, I can't remember if it was at Barnard or if it was at Harvard, but that was the first time I had read The Moonstone and then we analyzed it. And I don't remember if we talked about what, you know, the gardening aspect of it, but I'm going to guess no. (laughs) And so I was super excited to see him here. So The Moonstone is probably classified by most people as a gothic novel. Uh, Mm. Wilkie Collins, just to kind of put him with his contemporaries, if you're not familiar with Collins, he was a friend of Charles Dickens. So that period, we're thinking, you know, Victorian London. And the Moonstone uh, actually doesn't have a murder It's quite mysterious, and the mystery is all around a jewel, the Moonstone, stolen from India by the British Raj. And it's, you know, it's, you know, has this great ripple effect as it comes back uh, to the home country, uh, you know, stolen, essentially. And so... uh, The detective is Sergeant Cuff. We never learn Sergeant Cuff's first name. So interesting. I know. And he is perplexed by this puzzle. He is a part of Scotland Yard. So that has already emerged in the history of criminology in Great Britain. Uh, He is obsessed with roses, which is very appropriate to the period because uh, you know, Great Britain in general was sort of obsessed by roses. At this time, rose gardens were very much in vogue. You know, rose societies got a big, you know, a big, you know, start around that period and competitions around roses. So it really fits historically. And roses sort of wind through the moonstone as kind of this underlying theme and so that was really fun for me to you know to find because it gave me a historical basis and you know it didn't just you know come out of nowhere this is cultivating place i'm jennifer jewell we're back in conversation this week with author and gardener marta mcdowell we're speaking about her newest title gardening can be murder how poisonous poppies sinister shovels and grim gardens have inspired mystery writers we'll be right back for more after a quick break stay with us Hey, it's Jennifer again. I've had so many lovely interactions with people who have attended my talks recently. In Seattle, at the National Native Seed Conference, a multitude of talks I am giving this year. And I treasure every kind word, every thoughtful note of feedback. Recently, I had this note from writer and poet Greg Raymond, and I wanted to share it with you all, and he kindly gave me permission. He wrote, 
Dear Jennifer, I wanted to thank you for your thoughtful and inspiring words at the National Native Seed Conference. I also enjoyed your new book on seeds, What We Sow. I listen to the podcast version of your show regularly, and I thought you might enjoy this poem I wrote several years ago. I had some partridge pea seeds that I'd forgotten to plant outside in the fall because they need some cold stratification to germinate. So I was trying to get them planted in the cold early Maine spring. Enjoy, Greg. Here's the poem. Partridge Peas. The damp rawness of early spring takes what little courage I cannot spare. But these seeds beg to be chosen, full of hope, grandparents to be. A yearning grows an opening in the soil and a vision of what might be escapes as dreaming seeds fly into the womb of the earth and begin to stir, grateful for their chance to awaken into life. Mm. That to me is what March and spring are all about. And I just loved that Greg shared this with me. If you had an interest in hearing my keynote address to the National Native Seed Conference, I have included a link to it online in this week's show notes, which you can always find under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. I am the third talk in directly following Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland and Director of the Bureau of Land Management Tracy Stone Manning's words to the audience. So happy Leap Day. Happy March. We are leaning close to the vernal equinox now, gardeners. Lean into the light. Let it grow you. We're back now to our conversation with Marta McDowell, an author and a gardener, sharing more about her newest title, Gardening Can Be Murder, which delves into the literary and horticultural history of mysteries and crime fiction being long co-evolved with life and death and mystery in the garden. As we come back, Marta continues to describe some of the mystery genre's most compelling gardening detectives. You know, as I mentioned before, I love history. So another one of my favorite gardening detectives is Brother Cadfile. So Brother Cadfile was written by an English woman named Edith Pargeter, Uh, She lived in a town that I always read as Shrewsbury, you know, with my American accent, and they actually pronounce as Shrewsbury or something close to that. Yes, who knew? Uh, And all of these novels, there are some 20 of them, are set 
in the 12th century, which was a very turbulent time in English history. Uh, it was a period of civil unrest. There were two vying candidates who said that they were monarch. One was King Stephen and the other was Empress Maud, who was the, uh, I guess, the daughter of the prior king. And she was the uh, the Holy Roman Empress, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all that is historical fact. And uh, Edith Pargeter, writing as Ellis Peters, uses that uh, with a specific setting of a Benedictine abbey on the Welsh borders. So her protagonist, her sleuth, is a Benedictine monk named Brother Cadfile. He is fictional, but the abbey is a fact or was a fact until Henry VIII decided that he was going to get rid of all the monasteries. <laughs> and so only the you know kind of remnants of it are left in Shrewsbury. Uh, but the history is quite interesting. And it was this set of novels that sort of set the trend for historical murder mysteries, which became its own subgenre, right? I'm reading one now called beloved poisons that set in the 19th century. So, you know, that, uh, you know, thing that she created just out of her own creative spirit has turned into its own beast, if you will. So that's fun. He's the herbalist at the monastery. So, of course, they talk a lot about uh, herbs and their, you know, healing and killing properties. <laughs> Right. Right. You know, and, and this comes up over and over again. So now maybe we'll move to another section. But again, I want to point out that so much of what this elucidates for us is actually the history of science, of, you know, botanical knowledge, of chemistry, of people starting to understand the properties of plants. I mean, clearly people knew which plants could kill you and which plants couldn't. There's that, you know, sort of recurring good uh, and funny cartoon, funny in a murderous way, where, you know, there's a little sort of, you know, uh, prehistoric human uh, standing in front of a mushroom alive and well saying, this one is edible. <laughs> and then there is a dead prehistoric human lying in front of a mushroom and it says, this one is poisonous. <laughs> so, um, but it, it, it traces as well our deepening knowledge and uh, differentiating of scientific fields at the same time. So we talk about in there, you, you give one example of how toxic the yew plant, the yew tree, which is iconic across England and, you know, kind of a famous hedge around churches and whatnot, it is incredibly poisonous. Well, it is, it is, but it's also incredibly medicinal and is the basis for uh, anti-carcinogenic drugs uh, that have been miraculous for people. So, so there's all of this, you know, kind of embedded knowledge and history going on in these, as subtext in these stories. So you go from these wonderful... <laughs> These wonderful characters of the gardening detectives into, you know, the garden as setting and garden as clue keeper and garden as um, even the the kind of evil gardeners. And what's the other one? As motive. 
Talk, to, give us like a couple of little stories from these sections, Marta. Sure. So motive, right? How could a garden inspire murder? Right, yes. right. So you could. Except for the slugs. Except for yeah, the slugs. The, the but actually, talk, you know, yeah. to murder people. So I think my favorite has to be Deadheads, uh, the best title of all gardening murder mysteries. Deadheads by Reginald Hill. Uh, the entire book is why all the murders, and there are multiple, are motivated by a rose garden and an obsession for a rose garden. So, you know, plants can get to be an obsession like any other collection. Uh, and so this one, you know, it was a family rose garden. He had to have it and nothing would stand in his way. Uh, and, uh, you know, every chapter in this book has the variety of a rose, you know, an actual rose variety. And he has artfully made the action of the chapter match the name of the rose. And so it just, it works really well. Uh, it's a fun read. Uh, it's one of those books, I don't know if everyone will be satisfied because it's one of those that has this kind of almost inconclusive ending. Uh, not everyone, you know, many people like to have, you know, a bow on it at the end. <laughs> Yes, I do. Yes, I do, Marta. <laughs> yes. But at any rate, it's a very good read. So that's one. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the minute you say that, I think, of course, that makes sense. Like when you think about the basis of our plant world being the basis for almost everything we actually value, like any real thing we value, currency, not actually like money, not isn't a real thing. It's a thing we we use to get other things, whereas plants are actually valuable beings. You know, you think of the spice trade, you think of, you know, the history of tulips as uh, as epically uh, annotated by Anna Pavord. And um, so, of course, you know, or orchids or, you know, just, yeah, you can see where people would kill for them. Yes. So, of course, mystery writers have used that. And, mm. you know, you can you can weave greed, you know, all of the yeah. all of the basics, you know, jealousy. There's a there's a absolutely wonderful short story by Ruth Rendell called. Oh, OK. I was going to say perfection made me do it. Are you yes, doing this yes, one? I love it. It's, OK, go. The Sorry. short story is called Weeds. If you haven't read it and you're a gardener, you should look it up because it will make you try to relax <laughs> about your garden. You know, it's just, you know, it's a very, she's very good at writing these very tense stories. And in a short story that is concentrated even more. And so it is, you know, an open garden day. I don't know if any of your listeners have ever opened their garden for a specific day. It's incredibly stressful. And, you know, the stress 
shows. Yeah. <laughs> in this it is. Plot. There's so much pressure. <laughs> Absolutely. And at any rate, she does that really well. And then, you know, there are roses, you know, there are fictional roses and orchids. I think those are the two kind of most popular plants that have been used as, you know, plot devices for motivation in a murder, because those are the ones that have tended to, you know, soar up in price. Actually, I just read one about a snowdrop. <laughs> so, you know, same uh, thing, right? In England, snowdrop prices are sometimes astronomical for individual yep. bulbs because of collectors. And so anytime you have that phenomenon with anything, it can be used by a mystery writer. Uh, but plants have really fit very well with those. Yeah. I want to get to the the end where you talk about the gardens of mystery writers and you you go to some you outline some historic ones but then you go to some living ones as well and i found these really fascinating marta can you describe this section and maybe a little bit about why it was important to include it in the book well, I have always been interested, fascinated, really, by writers who garden and how that influences their writing. So that was important to me to include um, because this is a very different kind of writing than, let's say, Emily Dickinson or Beatrix Potter and the other people I've written about. And uh, some of the mystery writers I knew, like Vicki Lane, I had always read her stories. They're set in the sort of foothills of the Blue Ridge, not far from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, my sister lives in the Carolinas, and she somehow learned about Vicki Lane early on when she started first to write. And so uh, she was one I contacted. Uh, she was quite interesting because in addition, she had been an English teacher um, before she started writing. Uh, she and her husband own a farm in this area of North Carolina, and she's also a quilter. And so her protagonist, is a quilter and she's a gardener and she sells dried flowers and herbs and things like that. So it was interesting for me to find out how Vicky gardened and she does have these you know raised beds and they're sort of quilt like so it was interesting to see her reflecting her own gardening into her character. Uh, other authors I I got leads. So I had contacted Amy Stewart. Now, you know, if you want to talk about wicked plants, yeah. you know, <laughs> you start with Amy Stewart. So, you know, if I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, Amy Stewart is one of them. 
And she writes a, a mystery series set in New Right. Jersey. I was going to say that's yes. such a great. Yes. Yes. So I had never read any of hers. Sorry, Amy. I have since then. Uh, but to take a shortcut, I just emailed her and said, Amy, do any of your mysteries involve horticultural themes? And she said, no, I'm sorry. You know, they're based on these actual uh, women uh, one of whom was a deputy, a very early you know, deputy, or maybe it was a sheriff in New Jersey called the Cop Sisters, K-O-P-P, -P, not C-O-P. And she said, you know, they were really urban. They weren't, uh, you know, they weren't really in the country and gardening. So uh, she said, but contact Naomi Hirahara. She's got a yeah. very interesting series. I didn't know anything about Naomi. And I read a couple of her books. She's written a couple of series. She's a historian. She's a journalist. She lives in Southern California. And she based one of her book series on her father, who was a first-generation Japanese-American. He had been sent to Japan as a teenager or adolescent for his education, gets stuck there during the Second World War, survives Hiroshima comes back to Southern California, where, you know, his countrymen and, you know, sort of family and friends have all been in internment camps. So it, it's an extremely rich series in its own history. And just because, you know, she is basing it on someone in her family who was a landscape gardener, because that was one of the few jobs that you know was open to them now again it's got a lot of wonderful detail so that was super fun to find her and i've read some of her nonfiction as well so well worth a read and i just felt like oh thank you amy you know that is such a huge discovery you know just so many interesting people and that was part of the fun for me because it yeah. really was this journey yeah and it was really interesting so in that section where where you talk about a handful of writers of mystery stories and their actual gardening lives uh you know you include People we would expect you to include, like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Agatha Christie. So to come across these living writers and to hear about their stories, and I had never heard of either of those two living writers. So I was like, oh, great. This is like two more sets of books I get to go and explore and have on hand for my own relaxation and relief. <laughs> um, and so that that must have been a really kind of fun and interesting in-person experience, uh, that kind of research for you, Marta. Yes, and very different because, again, I typically write about people more in the Nathaniel Hawthorne, Agatha Christie time period. <laughs> Yeah, who, yeah. You know, whatever you say about them, they're not really there to refute it. <laughs> no, so true. you can't get it. You could get it wrong, but no one's going to. Yeah, <laughs> no, no one is going to come right back and go. No, that's not what I said. To that's you. not what I said. <laughs> um, oh, that's great. Yeah. No, I was really pleased to learn about both of them. And it is such a reminder of um, 
just that gardeners are everyone and we are everywhere. You bet. And so are, you know, gardens. So are plants. And I think that is, you know, part of the thing with this book, which I, you know, of course, this book is a bit of fun. You know, I had fun writing it. I want people to have fun reading it. But it is also true that, you know, the plants, we don't always see them, but they're always there if you look. And they can tell you things uh, in different ways, I think at different times in your life. So I now, you know, look at plants in a different way because I wrote this book and I thought about it in different ways. Mm. So that's, you know, that's part of the joy for me in, you know, in writing a book like this to say, okay, you know, gardens aren't just about sun, but they're also about shadow. Ah, I like that. I like that. It is a fun book. It is also illuminating and interesting and will introduce you to so many great stories and writers uh, where you will find lots of gardening fun along the way as well. Okay, so Marta, back to the living. If you had to live and garden, maybe murder, with only five plants to live with and cultivate for the rest of time, what would those five plants be? This is a, like, really hard question. (laughs) I know. It's the hardest question I ask, actually. (laughs) So I had, when I was thinking about this, I I will confess to all of your listeners, yes, Jennifer asked me this in advance, and it's a good thing, because I think I would have been totally stuck. I had to limit myself and say, okay, I'm just going to assume that I can have another list of plants that I'm going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, so this is not your this is not your food provision. This is not my food provision, even though okay. a couple of them are actually at least somewhat edible. So for winter, I would have the plant that is right behind me. It is a pencil plant or officially Euphorbia tiryukali sticks on fire. I think I've got that right. It is this very strange Euphorbia. So Euphorbias are like, you know, think poinsettia. And its leaves are insignificant and it does most of its photosynthesizing through its branches. And if, if you any of you look up a picture of it, if you don't know the plant, you will understand what I mean. It's a very quirky plant. Uh, it's indestructible. You know, I can I can be away for weeks and it's still fine. Uh, it is something that I can kind of bonsai at various times. Anyway, so that's one. Okay. Uh, for spring, I and I have added a lot more native plants to my palette of late. Uh, I would have a plant called Zizia. I love its name. Zizia aurea, the golden Alexander. It just blooms and blooms. It's an umbel. I always like umbeliferous plants. So it looks like a Queen Anne's lace, only it's yellow. And uh, it seeds all over my garden. And so love that. Butterfly weed for the summer. It's bright orange uh, and it seeds all over the place. The butterflies love it. And I propagated it with a with a, uh, a gardener at the New York Botanical Garden in her class. So it has a special place in my heart. 
And then a black-eyed Susan called Rachel's Eyes, Rebecca Fulgida. Uh, also, seeds all over the place, native plant. And, you know, it could just fill up my garden. And then I had to have one tree. And so I decided the red bud because it will also seed all over. I've given them to all sorts of friends and it's so beautiful in the spring so beautiful and edible the pods and the flowers yes. are edible <laughs> and so pretty in a salad <laughs> thank you so much for being a guest on cultivating place again today marta i i really enjoyed gardening can be murder and in this exact moment in our world we can all use a little bit of fun that also helps us to process uh some of the less digestible things in our world at this time and gardening can be murder is one of them always a pleasure jennifer Marta McDowell is a writer and a gardener. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and elsewhere. Her books include Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, All the President's Gardens, and Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, among others. She teaches landscape history and horticulture at the New York Botanical Gardens, where she studied landscape design. She lives, gardens, and writes in Chatham, New Jersey. She joined us today to share more about her newest title, Gardening Can Be Murder, how poisonous poppies, sinister shovels, and grim gardens have inspired mystery writers. Join us again next week when, to kick off Women's History Month, we visit with the Queen of Herbs, Jekka McVicker of Jekka's Herb Farm in the United Kingdom. Jekka's long career bringing the gardened world the best the herbs of the world have to offer to our gardens, to our environments, to our kitchens, and to our souls is not to be missed. That's next week, right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for gardening. Thank you for supporting. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications support from Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.